You're listening to TIP. When I was doing it, I was, I was probably working 60 hours a week in my private equity job. I was buying deals that were doing really well. And then I was running the online side too. And look, I'm, I'm not going to say it was easy, but it was doable, right? And everyone always acts like it's this, this impossible thing just because their priorities are out of whack. It's like, if you want to go to every single social event, yeah, it's impossible. You're right. If you want to actually be done by 30 or early 30s, you're going to have to give some stuff up, right? It's not going to be fun. And I think a lot of people have this idea that they can kind of do both paths and you can. Hey guys, in today's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down and talking with The Real Estate God, a famous anonymous Twitter account with over 100,000 followers to talk about his unique views on life, real estate, and business. You'll learn why he thinks investing in a 401k is a bet against yourself, how he got started in real estate private equity, what moves you need to make to leave your W-2 wisely, macro trends he thinks that will affect us in the coming years, why he focuses on tertiary markets, the origin story of the Real Estate God account, and a whole lot more. The Real Estate God worked in real estate private equity at the institutional level before founding his own real estate private equity firm. In addition to doing his own deals, he now runs an acquisitions bootcamp where he accelerates the learning an investor needs to know before buying their first profitable deal. There's a lot in this one to unpack, and if you need a playbook for creating wealth, the Real Estate God provides it. And so without further delay, let's dive into today's episode with The Real Estate God. Celebrating 10 years, you are listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network. Since 2014, we interviewed successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Now for your host, Patrick Donnelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly. And joining me in the studio today is the real estate god. Welcome to the show. Hey, Patrick. Great to be here. I am super happy to have you on today. I've been a big fan for several years now on Twitter and just happy to get a chance to talk to you. We've been talking here a little about 15 or 20 minutes beforehand, and I, this is just going to be a fun conversation. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Really looking forward to it. Cool. So I wanted to start off with asking about heroes. There's a Warren Buffett quote where he talks about, tell me who your heroes are and I'll tell you who you're going to turn out to be. So I wanted to just jump right into like talking about some of the heroes that you've had just growing up, maybe in college, post-college stuff, people that have influenced and inspired you along the way, whether real estate related or not. Yeah, I think that's a good one. I mean, I, I definitely had a ton of different ones. And I think you're kind of conception of what you want to do in life changes a lot as you get older. So I'd say my first hero is definitely my dad, just because incredible guy, like incredible work ethic, just so personable and really just so good at kind of getting what he wants, you know, which I think at the end of the day is what you, you want to do in life, you know, and, and we would have, I remember just one example, right? We were really young at a, outside of like a frozen four. I forgot where we were and where the frozen four is being held, but we're just walking down the street and we're just like, oh, is that, that the frozen four? Like, let's, let's see if we can get in. So we're like trying to like haggle for tickets. There's like none anywhere. My dad just goes up to this random guy who's like, looks like he's, he knows what he's doing, whatever. He talks to him for like 30 seconds. The guy just hands him four tickets for free. And we were just like, look, what's going on here? And he just never told us what he said to the guy, but we ended up getting all the tickets for free and went in for free. And that's just kind of an example. Like he always was able to do stuff like that, where 
it was very much like kind of just showed his background because he came from kind of like a, a not great background where he had to kind of have those street smarts and then ended up working on Wall Street. So ended up having kind of both those combinations, which most people don't have, obviously, especially now. I think I think it's insane how bad people's social skills are now. But stuff like that really, I think, shaped me kind of understanding what you want to do, how to act and all that. And I think as I got older, I kind of morphed because initially I really just wanted to work on Wall Street, right? Basically in a job. And during my first internship, I ended up meeting the guy who is now my mentor, who basically he was, he was really good friends with the CEO of my firm. And he, he worked in the same office and we ended up talking a ton because we'd just be there late. He was working late. I was always working late. And it'd just be us in the office. We'd be talking a ton. And the more I talked, the more I was like, why would I work a job when I could just do what he's doing? He's making 10, 20 times more than everyone who's working a job. He's doing the same work, right? It's not, it's not different. He's doing the same work. And yeah, he's a little smarter. But he's not that much smarter, right? He's not 20 times smarter. So it, it really started evolving. And I was just like, why, why would I do this? Right. You can just, there's an easier path. And I think just being able to see that other people have done that path really, really helps. And obviously, a lot of that is putting yourself in a position to see it and all that. But once you're able to see it, it just becomes so obvious. You're like, why would I do this when I could just be making so much more and owning my own time and and having more fun, honestly? You had a interview that I listened to. I forget who it was with, but you had a comment about 401ks and you had some interesting thoughts on that, which I really enjoyed hearing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Some of your thoughts on 401ks and how it's not a bet on yourself? I think it's inherently a bet against yourself. But I think, I think the biggest thing with 401ks, right, is, and you'll hear this from so many people, look, I want to be worth $100 million or $20 million, right? How can you possibly rationalize caring about a 401k then? Right. What is your 401k going to be worth? A million dollars, $2 million? Right. So basically, you're going to spend all your time worrying about 1% of your eventual net worth. It, it just makes zero sense. And I think a lot of people just, they don't get that those are two diametrically opposed ideas. And they just go on with life like, oh, like I just keep contributing to the 401k. It's like, you're not going to get anywhere by doing that. Right. And it's fine. If you want to just save some money, have that money for 65, whatever. Right. Like that's, that's fine. But just be honest with yourself. You're not trying to be worth $100 million because if you were, you'd be doing it very differently. And I think that's one of the biggest things is that I think it, it kind of engineers this mindset where you're dishonest with yourself. And I think a lot of people are like that. And I, I'll, I'll tweet about this a lot of the time too. Say like, look, if you're not willing to do X, Y, and Z, you don't really want it. And someone will be like, oh no, but I, I still want it. It's like, they don't because you'd be doing it otherwise, right? And it just, it's pretty simple. And I think that's, that's one of my main issues with the 401k is that, look, if you want to be as rich as you say you want to be, which is great, cool. I want to be that rich too. The 401k is not going to matter. And you have to be honest about that. Yeah. So in your own life, I mean, and you're coming out of college and we, I do want to get into that a little bit. Some of your early moves, career moves coming out of college. Did you take your own advice? Did you, did you not contribute to a 401k specifically so you could save up capital to start getting involved in real estate deals? I've never put a dollar in to this day. I don't even have one, but I didn't even realize what I was doing at the time. Cause I think there's a different mindset, right? When you're in the mindset of being an entrepreneur, Almost everything is better off being reinvested either one in yourself or two in a business when you're starting out. And I think a lot of people don't get that either. They, with their first dollars, they always invest in the market. There's an opportunity cost there, right? Like the first 50K you ever save, that, you have to scratch a claw for that, right? That's not easy. And if you're just going to put that in the market where you can't use it to grow yourself or a business, there's a huge cost associated with that. Most people think, oh, I'm getting 8% a year. It's like, no, you just missed out on the opportunity to start a business that can make you $10 million a year. It's insane. And especially if you think about it in the beginning, right? Whatever, 8% off 50K, you make four grand that year. Right? Like, 
what have you been doing? And obviously people will just start yapping about like compound interest, blah, blah, blah. Sure. But that year you made four grand, right? And your opportunity cost in that 50K, if you're any bit confident in yourself or a business, will be so much higher than that. So I think I didn't really have that articulated at that point, but I knew I never wanted to put it somewhere where I couldn't control it because I knew I'd, I'd make more money doing it myself. Right. Charlie Munger's got that quote about the first 100,000 is a bitch, you know, and I told you I had Dickie Bush on the podcast last week and he said the same thing. His first advice for anybody is save 100 grand. Don't even screw around with like trying to figure out how to invest in 401ks and this, that and the other. Save up a nest egg and invest in yourself. And a crazy thing too is so the first 30 grand I ever made, I put it into a real estate deal. It was a calculated bet. It was basically... It's hard to explain, but basically there was a 10% chance of making a million dollars off it and a 90% chance I'd lose all the money. The total was 50. I was 30,000 a bit, but overall the expected value was positive, right? So that, that's why I went through it. And it was the reason it was able to do was just because it was all public information based on a cannabis integration into a state. So you could actually do the math on it. And I don't think many people did the math on it, but anyway, ended up losing all the money, right? And that was, that was honestly probably the most painful thing that's ever happened to me because it, it took me like, just a year straight of just scrabbling, crawl, calling, whatever you want to call it, to save up that 30 grand. And then it just went straight out the door. And I was like, wow, this sucks. Like, this is horrible. Right. And that's, I think that really taught me a lot just about what I wanted to do with my money, how I wanted to invest it, risk profiles, everything like that. And I've been pretty public about the fact that I think losing money early on is the best thing that can happen to you. I think I can probably argue for myself that I've probably learned that lesson too many times, but it's an important lesson to learn. And once you do, you understand how you, should, like, how you should be allocating your money, right? And, and at the end of the day, once you get to a certain level of wealth, income, all that, it's very hard for the next marginal dollar of income to matter that much just because of the way it's taxed. So it all becomes how you manage your wealth, how you push it forward. And if you don't learn those lessons early on, you're going to lose all your money on the back end. So you'd way rather lose 30 grand than when you have a $10 million portfolio and you learn that lesson for the first time. But I think all those things are, are actually really important. And that's one of the huge things about not putting your money in the S&P 500 early on or 401k early on, because you don't learn anything by doing that. And everyone's always like, oh, like you kind of see the market go up and it. Like, no, you don't. You're going to leave your money in there regardless. So you've learned nothing by doing that. Meanwhile, I've lost 30 grand, but now I know exactly what to do next time. So at the end of the day, that money is nothing, right? 30 grand is nothing. And once again, you go back to that mindset, right? You want to be worth $100 million. Why do you care about 30 grand? Right? What is that going to do for you? You need to learn the lesson to multiply that or to be able to create larger amounts. I love these points. It's so good. So last week, two different people recommended Die With Zero. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, Bill Perkins, but the guy, he worked on Wall Street. He was a trader. And early in his career, he was doing exactly what you were talking about, like saving in a 401k, you know, scratching and clawing, just trying to, and he was making nothing. He was like working on the floor of an exchange as a runner or something like that. So he's just like scrounging and trying to cut costs and saving a couple thousand bucks here and there. And it, he had a mentor and he said exactly what you said, like, what are you doing? Like, stop doing this. Like, you're going to, you're potentially likely going to make a lot more money. Like what you're doing right now has no bearing on where you're going to be 20, 30, 40 years down the road. Yeah. It, it just is. Those are some really good points. I, I love your take on that. It's fun to hear. The thing about money early on is it's just a tool. It's a tool to learn, right? And once you have that experience, if you're any bit good, at investing in yourself or about learning, eventually you're going to have a skill set that can make you a million dollars a year. You just will. Whether you want to act on that skill set and actually like go forward with starting that business or spending the 
whatever, 68 hours a week to, to do it is a different story, but you can easily get there. Everyone can get there, but you have to, you have to be in the trenches learning those lessons. And I think a lot of people never, they never end up exercising that muscle, right? They basically work a W2 job and they look, I'm nothing against that, but you don't make any decisions of consequence when there's people above you, right? There's always someone telling you, Hey, do this. Hey, do that. You're never actually exercising that muscle of, Oh, I made a mistake. This cost me. Let me recalibrate. Because that never happens because someone else is already correcting your mistakes beforehand. At the same time, they don't learn anything from the investing side because they just put it into a 401k or their retirement account, whatever all those things are. To me, I consider them all the same thing. And I think it's all fine if you're honest with yourself and you say, look, I want to have a comfortable life and I want to retire with a few million dollars at 65. Sure. But if you want to actually make a ton of money, the only way to do that is one, starting a business or two, being a really good investor. Just mathematically, that's the only way to do it. So... You have to learn early on that your mind is the most important thing there, right? It's not the capital, it's your mind, because if you're smart, you can multiply money really quickly. And if you're smart, you can start a business. So it's, it's really all about that. And the 30 grand you lose initially, the 100 grand you lose initially, all that, is, it's a drop in the bucket at the end of the day. It's education. It is. It just, it's education, right? And honestly, I would way rather, I know we were talking about college before we started recording, but if you told me I could spend 250K on my own education versus 250K on college, I don't even think it's close, right? I think... The only thing you learn in college is, well, the only thing it's helpful for is one, the network, which I think is actually worth it. And two, just, just really making lifelong friends and memories. But the rest of it, like if you told me what would I pay for the actual college education I received, it's zero dollars. And you could tell no one values it either because all these classes are free. Like Harvard has that school online for free. No one takes it because it's worthless. It's funny. I sorry to keep mentioning Dickie Bush, but he he said the same thing. He went to Princeton, right? And he was a professional gamer, like Call of Duty, you know, and won tournaments and, you know, made money as a as a kid and he's like I learned more playing 18 hours of video games than I ever did at at my Ivy League education in terms of how to run a business, how to talk to people, how to build relationships, all these things. He's like video games taught me more. And which kind of I've got kids that play video games 12 or 14, 15, they could play that long. And uh, it was actually a good reframing for me because I kind of viewed it as a, a total waste of time. I mean, I, I would almost go as far as to say I had to unlearn all the bad habits I learned in college. Like, I think it was actually highly detrimental from a professional standpoint. Obviously, look, I, I had a great time. I made lifelong friends, whatever, right? Let's, let's ignore that part. From a professional development perspective, it probably took me two or three years to unlearn all the bad habits I learned in college. Just because you don't have to do anything. There's no consequences. Nothing's real. Like you go in there, you get like a C minus, nothing matters, right? You just talk to the teacher, you whine about it for a bit. It goes up to like a B plus. Who cares? Right? You go on to the next thing. And it's just like stuff like that. It just, if, as long as you knew people, it just stuff kind of came in the door and you just, you never really had to do that much. And there's really almost like, depending on where you went to school, it's a contained environment. You can't really make any mistakes, right? You make a mistake, it gets like, it's like a pillow fight. It goes up the ladder, nothing happens, and it comes back down. So I think that's just highly detrimental. I would honestly rank it. College, I think it was detrimental to professional experience. I think my job, I probably learned 100x what I learned in college, maybe the first month. It's just insane. And then starting your business, I would say your first month of starting a business is more valuable than the entire W-2 experience. That's as far as I would go. There's somebody listening to this that is in college and, you, you know, maybe you're just looking back on your own experience and giving your younger self advice. What would you, I mean, would you have done it totally differently? Would you say, would you have dropped out of college and just started something on your own or? 
So it's a good question. I mean, personally, I wouldn't have just because I loved college so much. Like I just, I just enjoyed those four years so much. I wouldn't have given up for anything. And at that point, I just, I didn't really care about money or anything, right? It was just like, you're, you're there to have fun. But I think I'd have a different answer if I wasn't able to leave so quickly. But I was, I, I just was, right? I basically left to join the real estate private equity firm. I was there for a few years. And I've always said this, I think real estate's an incredibly simple business. I don't think it takes that long to learn at all. I think when people say that, they're just completely lying to your face. And I have the actual results to back that up on the deals I've done personally. Basically, I was able to leave really quickly. So it wasn't like I had to spend a lot of time there. It wasn't like it was like this 20-year slog that a lot of people talk about. So I wouldn't really change much. I think I played it pretty much perfectly. At the same time, I had like a ton of failures in there, even in college. Like I tried to start an e-commerce business, completely failed. I mean, me and me and one of my good friends started this like, it was like a women's health. I've, I don't even know what the store was, just a total joke. So we were, we were just like, all right, why don't we start running Facebook ads? And we had no idea what we were doing. So we're like, all right, we have a thousand bucks. Like that'll probably go pretty far. I think we tapped out the budget within like two days and we're just like, all right, we're broke. I guess, I guess it's over. And we just had no money left. So we, we had a few of those type experiences too, which I think really helped later on because now I look at a ton of different businesses and just understanding kind of the private equity side of it and not just the real estate side really helps you understand the risk reward of the real estate deals you're doing and whether it makes sense or not, which I think a lot of people don't have that on the real estate side because they've only ever done real estate. But I've had that experience across a few different businesses now, especially on the online side. Well, it seems like you're a little bit of a contrarian too. Like, you know, your dad w- was on Wall Street. You went to an Ivy League school studied econ, whatever. It seems like you would have gone straight to Wall Street yourself, but you didn't take that path. So I wanted to hear a little bit about that, like going a little against the grain, because you definitely, like it comes across in your writing that you've got this contrarian bent, which I really appreciate. Yeah, I've kind of always been been like that, very opinionated, like always the one asking questions. Like even in like, like a CCD class, I'd be the one like, did this really, like this story really happen? And everyone's like, all right, just like shut this kid up in the back, you know? But uh, no, it, I would say what happened really was when everyone started doing their, their official recruiting, which was, I forgot, it was probably sophomore year. It was like during the summer, I was enjoying myself. I was like, I'm not getting in a suit and talking to these people and like pretending I love Goldman Sachs. I'm pretending this guy isn't like a total weirdo, right? So I don't want to do that for my entire summer. So I was just like, nah, I'm just not going to do it. So I just spent the entire summer having fun. Everyone else was like stressing out over like the case studies or whatever those things are. And I basically did nothing. Then when I got back to school, I just took this internship at a basically a, a local startup. And the guy was the guy was really accomplished, actually a good guy to this day. I mean, one and still invests in my deals and had he a real estate guy, a startup in a real estate. No, no, it was actually a startup. It was a what was it? Basically like a like an entry level job platform that connected students and employers. But he had started some other businesses beforehand. He was he was very, very wealthy already. And this is kind of his like second or third business. But he knew a lot and he was he was really helpful. And he's still, like I said, he invests in my deals to this day. So we, we still kind of keep in touch. But basically, I was there doing that part time. And I became pretty good friends with him. We were just kind of like drink on Friday nights. And he was just like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. I want to do private equity. He's like, all right, one of my best friends from business school runs a real estate private equity firm. You want to interview? It's like, sure. So I get to the interview, did, literally didn't know anything. The I got asked one question about real estate. I think it was about like what a cap rate is, like completely bungled it. And then ended up just ended up just kind of making friends with the interviewer because I just pointed out like he was he had like a picture of him fishing on his desk. And we just talked about fishing for like 45 minutes. And he was just like, look, like you don't really know much, but like you seem cool. Like do you want to we'll give you the job. And I ended up getting that internship. Then I basically I grinded at the internship. That was probably the the hardest I've worked in my life, I would say. 
basically 16, 18 hour days. I wouldn't get up from my desk. I just, I obviously wanted a return offer, you know? So I didn't, I didn't go out at all, just kind of grinded for three months straight and then got the return offer. So that, that's kind of how I got in. It was a very atypical path. I never did recruiting. I never had to deal with like the whole, I don't even know what to call it, like interviewing slog. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. And most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash M-I. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash M-I for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash M-I for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. So at what stage did like the light bulb for real estate come on? It didn't sound like you had any real estate background in college or took any real estate courses or anything like that. When did the light bulb hit that it was like, this is what I want to do? It didn't really. Like it wasn't one of those. And I took to this day, I'm not that passionate about real estate. Like if you told me, I was actually asking this question. I was at dinner with a few other really accomplished real estate guys. And everyone asked, like, look, if you, if someone gave you a billion dollars, would you keep doing real estate? I was like, 
I wouldn't touch it ever again in my life. Right. And then they, and a few, a few of them were diehard guys. Like, look, we would be there the next morning. I was like, you guys are out of your minds. So I'm not, I've never been huge on it. I, I just, it's a vehicle for making money. And I think it's, it's a very efficient vehicle for making money. It's probably one of the easiest just because of the, the fragmented nature, the tax treatment, pretty much every, the leverage you can get, the risk reward of the deals. I think it's probably, I, I would argue it's probably the best way in the country to actually make money, just given the way the US is set up. So I think that's really the main reason I'm in it. But it wasn't like a light bulb came off and I was like, I need to be in real estate. It was just, look, I want to be in private equity. This is probably the easiest backdoor in without having to do what everyone else did. Because at that point, all my friends who were had better grades than me were more accomplished than me, they had to do two years of banking to get in. And I basically skipped that entire thing. So I never went through the banking gauntlet. I just skipped straight through and, and kind of ended up in a really good spot which I think was, was part lock, part scale. But that was kind of the main appeal for me is like, I was like, look, I can shorten my career right now, right? I'll be done and be in a, at the associate level when these people are pretty much kind of coming back in to do their first stint in PE. So when you, you worked a couple of years at uh, doing PE, at what stage did you, and you mentioned the $30,000 that you lost, but when did you do your first real estate deal? Was that, that was while you were working, right? My first deal that I actually did was a, it was probably like the first year. I would have to see if it was the first year or just after the first year I started working there. I would need to check the timeline. But basically, it was a 200K triplex. I, once again, had no money at the time. Right? I basically scrapped together 2,500 bucks. And you had lost the 30 grand already, right? I had lost that 30 grand already, yes. I'd lost that already. Or did I? I need to double check. But regardless, I had, I had no money. Whether I'd lost it or just didn't have it at the time, I had no money. And the basically had $2,500. So I knew I had to raise it all. And look, I think a lot of people think it's it's e- easy to do in the beginning. If you, even if you come from, I, I would say my background's a little bit better than most, but it's, it's really not. Like in the beginning, you're just begging people for money. <laughs> That's all it is. And you're not going off the deal. You're going off your reputation as a person for the last 20 years of your life. And I think that's one of the biggest things people don't get is they're always like, oh, like, how can I pitch this person? I'm like, I don't know. It's like, it's your friend. Like, why do you, why do you not know how to pitch them? Right, like, why do they not want to give you money anyway? They've known you your entire life. So I've always been so, I think that's one of the biggest red flags is when I get that question, someone's like, oh, no one will give me money. Like, that is a really bad sign. Like, that means no one in your life trusts you. And it doesn't need to be a lot of money, right? Like, you just need, you just need to piece it together, right? We ended up having, I don't even know how many investors in that deal. I had to bring in my business partner because I couldn't raise the whole 200K by myself. So it took a while, like, we were like begging and pleading with people. But there's also people who wanted to give us money because they trusted us because they known us their entire lives or I know them through college or whatever. So yeah, I think people kind of make that part a lot harder than it needs to be because all that groundwork should be done by virtue of who you, who you are as a person, right? If you're a trustworthy person, you've been trustworthy your entire life. Like I have friends who easily right now, they've never done an investing role ever. And if they said, hey, can you shoot me 50 grand for this deal I'm doing? I'd say yes immediately, you know? So I've always found that a huge red flag when people are like, oh, I can't find anyone. So that's, that's actually on you. That's not on anyone else. Yeah, that it's an issue. Right? It's, a, it's a huge issue. I mean, it really is. It's like no one trusts you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You had some really, you had a good tweet on having a W-2 and going out on your own and just some strong beginner moves that I wanted to talk about. Can you share a little bit about your thoughts on that and just how you handled it? Like when you ultimately went out on your own, talk about that process. I think it's a funny process because I think actually if you had, if I had run the numbers on what would happen, I never would have left. And I think a lot of people kind of think the same way. You almost need to have that sense of naivete where, oh, like, look, I can do it. Like, we'll kind of make it work, blah, blah, blah. But if you actually go through it, it's, it's, it's hard to do early on. So I think you just, you learn so much across the board. I think one of the biggest things you learn is just 
how much time you waste in a W2 job, like almost everything's wasted. And like if you if you actually wrote down, even as a salesperson at a W2, which is probably the highest level of generating revenue for the company, how much time they spend on actual sales versus BS, it's insane, right? When you switch from that to I can spend 100% of my time every day to making money, you realize making money is not that difficult. It's really not. It just depends. What, what does become kind of an issue is your time is so directly correlated to making money in the beginning that you feel really guilty when you're not working because you're like, look, I just missed out on whatever it is, a hundred grand on this deal or five grand on that. It's just, it's just all these things sort of add up and you kind of feel those like those pangs of guilt by not working. But overall, that's one of the biggest things you learn is it's not that hard, right? The fundamentals are actually really simple. You're basically, if you're selling a service, right, it's basically, look, you have an offer, you just need leads, right? Then you just need fulfillment. That's the business, right? And it's the same thing even on the real estate side. Like, it's not that hard. You're piecing together a deal, right? You need a deal, you need equity, you need debt. There it is, right? Like, it just, a lot of this stuff is not difficult. And I think a lot of people really overcomplicate the process, but that's one of the biggest things I learned almost immediately. Because I would say I was able to replace my income. Even when I was at my job, I was making a ton of money just on the online side, on the deals I was selling out of. And I was just like, why am I staying at this job? Right? Like, it's, it's a total waste of time. I probably could make, if I left today and replaced all this time I spent at the morning brew meeting, whatever it was, with making money, I'd be in a 10 times better spot in a year. And, and I was. I had the same experience like my first job out of college. I literally could have done the work in two or three hours a day, right? Realistically. To your point, it just frees up. If you leave, like it just frees up this huge amount of time to just focus on whatever, entrepreneurship, real estate, a bunch of other things. You've got some ideas. We were talking about Wall Street Playboys earlier, and I was a big fan of those guys in the blog. Talk to me a little bit about them. What, what was it about them that some of their ideas and thoughts and their writing that you enjoyed? I think I enjoy everything. I think they really don't get the credit they deserve. And speaking to a lot of kind of youngerish entrepreneurs, I know a lot of them just, when you, when you actually start talking to them, like, yeah, I actually followed them too. You know, there, there's a lot of that kind of going on. So uh, I think they kind of nailed everything on the head. The biggest thing I think is really just their emphasis on basically starting a side business, scaling it up and leaving your job and the way they structure that in a way that actually the risk reward is, is better than anything you could ever do, right? Because you, you basically build it up while you're at your job, which is what I ended up doing kind of on both ends. I was I had the online side with my Twitter account and I had the, the real estate side that I, I did at the same time. And that's, by the way, that's another thing that I, I just, I can't take seriously is when people are like, oh, I can't do anything. Like I'm working 50 hours a week in my job. It's like, look, like you can, right? You just don't want to. And that's fine, right? But don't pretend that you want to do it because when I was doing it, I was, I was probably working 60 hours a week in my private equity job. I was buying deals that were doing really well. And then I was running the online side too. And Look, I'm, I'm not going to say it was easy, but it was doable, right? And everyone always acts like it's this, this impossible thing just because their priorities are out of whack. It's like if you want to go to every single social event, yeah, it's impossible. You're right. If you want to actually be done by 30 or early 30s, you're going to have to give some stuff up, right? It's not going to be fun. And I think a lot of people have this idea that they can kind of do both paths and, and you can. Well, they've got a book, I think it was called... Uh... Efficiency, which was a really good one. I forget the other one too that, that was also very good that uh, I think anybody should order, get, read, you know, and, and implement. They had that one. That, I think they had triangle investing too. That's it. Yeah, triangle investing. That's it. I honestly thought their blog, which is which is now defunct, and we were talking about that earlier, was better than all that stuff. Just their a lot of it, their framework, how they approach things, 
on the business side, kind of what businesses to focus on. I think that helps a lot early on because a lot of that does save the, I know I talk about the trial and error period, but you also want to be smart about trial and error, right? You don't want to be doing it a billion times. And it's easier to be kind of focused when you have those suggestions off the bat. So I think a lot of that helped too with what to get into. I think I think one of the underrated things that they are extremely good at actually, and probably the best I've seen at is spotting long-term trends. And I think that's actually how they've made the majority of their money is just being at the right place at the right time, which is really just kind of like a macro investing thesis, but they take it to a micro level on what they choose to spend their time on. And I, I think that's kind of very impressive for what they've been able to accomplish there. So let's go into that a little further. Like, what are some of the macro trends that you're seeing that you are interested in, intrigued by, want to focus on? So like, I would say in general, from a very wide angle, that would be the most helpful for most people is I think having a W2 job is just going to get more and more squeezed as we go forward. Not even like a, like a sales pitch you like you need to get into real estate scenario in that, look, the, the labor pool is getting more and more global every single day. I personally, I have a virtual assistant like she's like a law degree in Europe. I pay her like two thousand dollars a month. She's better than U.S. employees because I have I have U.S. employees too. It's it's coming right, and I think a lot of people don't realize that they think they're very good at what they do. They're not. Almost every employee is replaceable, and I think people are in for a really really rude awakening with that. So what I always try and push people into from just a very wide macro perspective is like, look, you need to be developing a skill you can either use to run your own business or to invest. That's it. Right. Anything that's W-2 is eventually going to get squeezed. I think even the high-end jobs in the tech sector, a lot of those are going to get absolutely hammered as time goes on. I think one of the only ones that's safe is a strong sales skill set. Right? If you can make other people money, you'll always have a job. But everything else, I think, is in really, really tough shape. And I think that's only going to exacerbate going forward unless the U.S. kind of enacts some legislation to stop it. But I just at this point, I don't know why you'd hire an American employee when you could find someone way more qualified across the country for literally one-tenth the cost. So I think that is probably the biggest macro trend that I see. And the other thing that's actually a really big positive of that is as the world gets more and more financialized and as there's a bigger, bigger buyer pool for assets, like the entire move is not to be basically an employee or not to be mostly buying the assets unless you're really good at flipping it, but just start the business and sell it to them. You have all these businesses now that would be unsellable 15 years ago that are now really, really sellable. And if you can get a business to a decent multiple, decent EBITDA, you sell it for a decent multiple. And it's not, the, it's not that hard, right? I think getting a, like a service business, for example, to 300K in EBITDA is doable for almost everyone in the country over a five-year time span, right? And, and you could argue what that would be sold for, and it depends on the business, but you assume it's sold for around a million dollars. And that's a better outcome than almost anyone would get anywhere else. Not to mention, if you're actually able to do it right, you're selling, you get the EBITDA up to a few million, you're probably selling for a way wider multiple. And I think a lot of those things wouldn't have been possible a long time ago, and I think that's always odd when people complain about the current business multiples, like, oh, I can't buy anything. It's like, okay, then just obviously everyone's overpaying for stuff, create some crap, sell it to them and call it a day, right? Like, why are you complaining? It's a perfect opportunity. There are people who are willing to overpay, create something that they'll overpay for. What about real estate specifically? I know you're kind of agnostic in what you invest in, but I wanted to hear about, are there any trends that you see unfolding that uh, whether it's office or distressed office that might pique your interest later on down the road? I think in general, the way to make money, I think there's going to be two ways to make money in real estate going forward. Ignoring the asset class angle, which I think is, is a little bit more difficult to parse through. But I think you're in kind of smaller fragmented markets and seeing one-off opportunities that you can find a few of those a year. And I think that's always going to be the case. There's always going to be inefficiencies. People are always going to need to sell for one reason or another. And that's always going to be there. So that's, that's basically what I do. I don't want to have a ton of AUM. I don't like scaling. 
I don't like managing a ton of employees. I just want to do really good deals, put a lot of my own money in and just be in and out pretty quickly. Like I just, I have no wish to have this huge organization that I have to deal with every, every second. The other angle is you go the AUM route, which this is actually probably the better risk reward in, in all fairness, but you just raise a ton of capital. You basically market by deals that are okay, use moderate leverage, and you just make money off asset management fees. And look, those are, that's what every big private equity firm is doing now. They all make a ton of money. Personally, I think it's really boring, but it's probably the best risk reward you can get out of any business in the world, honestly. It's, if you say you lever a multifamily building 50% like with fixed rate debt, that thing's not going under unless you're a moron. So basically, all you need to do is just keep that thing kicking. You just say, hey, look, we're dear, our fund's going to be an evergreen fund, right? And we're just going to keep it in there forever. And you just have asset management fees for the rest of your life. And I think that is, on the high end, that's kind of what institutions are all doing now. Because it's very hard to find an edge in the institutional space with all the sophisticated actors. But on the other side, you also have those kind of fragmented markets on the low end. So I'll call it the sub $20 million space, which I think will always be there. And I think those are really the two ways I would say to make money. I think there's this kind of purgatory space where you raise like under 100 mil. You can't really pay your employees well. Your AM fees aren't that good. The opportunities are kind of difficult because you're trying to buy deals in the $50 million plus range. I think that's like kind of like a dead space. And if you're in there, you really want to scale up into the make money on asset management fee space before anything else. So that's kind of how I look at it from a macro sense. And I do think there's going to be a ton of opportunities, and I'm seeing them right now too, because I deal with people all the time, whether clients, friends who are kind of seeing these opportunities. And I've seen a few in the past two months that were actually very good as well. So I do think the opportunities will be there. So let's go into your thesis a little more. You focus on tertiary markets. It sounds like you really learn the market that you really better than anyone in the area and wait for a deal to come up that's mispriced. Is that somewhat accurate to say? Essentially, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very simple method. And really, the reason why it works is because when you're in these type of markets, it doesn't make sense for institutions to be there because they can't get scale. Right? Those AUM fees that they really like, those asset management fees, they don't come in. Right, because there's only $200 million worth of assets to buy in total. And obviously, they're not, they're not going to buy all of them. So that's basically the idea is that you're in these markets that are fragmented. You know it better than anyone else. You basically pick the markets. The way I pick markets, I think, is incredibly unique because I think most people look at it from a statistics perspective. Right? They basically say, what's the population growth? What are the economic, what's the economic engine in the area? What's the unemployment rate? What's the crime rate? And look, like, I'm not going to say those things aren't important, but that's not how you make money in real estate. Right. Mathematically, how you make money in real estate is getting your stabilized yield above the market cap rate. It doesn't, the stabilized yield doesn't care what the crime rate is. Neither does the market cap rate. So I always find it funny how people like have this like third derivative and they're like, oh, like the crime rate's doing this. It's sure. But if I stabilize that at 20, do I care what the crime rate is? And the answer is obviously not. And I think a lot of people just, they don't realize that they're, the metrics they're using are one step removed from how you actually make money. So the, the way I look at it is I look at markets. I canvass them when I'm first qualifying the market, right? And I'm canvassing the markets and I'm just looking to see markets where I can regularly stabilize above the market cap rate. Because that is a market you can make money in just mathematically. That's how you make money. It's not possible to make money if your market cap rate is above your stabilized yield. Just not, right? So that's how I look at it. And obviously I look at the statistics later and I'll kind of filter through that. But I think everyone else really misses out because they go into it from a statistics perspective first when that's not how you make money. It just, it's just not. It's a, it's, it certainly plays a role but it doesn't directly lead to you making money. You can have the best market in the world with population growth, everything like that, and still lose money immediately. When you're making a purchase, are you looking for stuff that you can do a, a value add on? I mean, the, the funny thing is like, ideally not, right? Ideally, you're just buying at so much price, you don't have to do anything. That's not always possible. But I, what I will say is usually what I'm looking for is there's a few different types of, of adding value, 
right? In one sense, it's actually executing renovations, right? And bringing it up to the renovated market rent. To me, that's actually the worst way of doing it, right? What I like to see is, and I think of market rents in two capacities, right? You have the unrenovated market rent and the renovated market rent. And the unrenovated market rent is still a thing. And I think a lot of people skip over that because all they do is look at the renovated numbers and see what you can get on the top end. But if your property is currently renting for 800, the unrenovated market rents 1,000 and the renovated is 1,200 or whatever, you can put in $0 and get up there. So what I'm usually looking for is I, I want markets where I can actually not renovate and that the, we're below the unrenovated market rent. That requires zero work. All you're doing is changing a number on a lease and you're 100% going to get there because you're still the lowest number in the market, right? You're still kind of the lowest end rent. So I guess to answer your question, yeah, we do look to add value, but in general, we're trying to do as little as possible. And in, for example, that deal we just sold, it was like six months ago, we only renovated eight units and it was a 5X because the unrenovated market rent was so much higher than where the rents were that we just didn't have to do much from a renovation perspective. So it's a matter of buying right. It's so like, this is the thing in real estate too, is that everyone always talks about operations. It, it doesn't matter. Like the entire, if you look at a stabilized yield formula, 90% of it is your purchase price. So you can try and like flail around and like figure out that last 10% as much as you want. It's not going to matter, right? If you buy wrong, it, it's over. Like there's no point in like trying to be like the operational genius. There's no point in being like, oh, like this is what we do or the property managers, we do this and that. It's like the deal is done. Like you just cut your losses and move on at that point. So it's all about the acquisition. And by the same token, right? If you buy right, you could literally have a monkey operate the property. It just doesn't matter. And if you buy right and you're going to stabilize high, it does not matter. It is nearly impossible to mess up. I'm sure someone can do it. So I won't say like it's guaranteed, but it's nearly impossible. So what's generally your exit strategy? How old, you mentioned Evergreen portfolio, but I don't think that's what you're doing. You're generally selling these in what kind of time frame? I'm generally targeting like a three-year time frame, but if I can do it quicker, I do it quicker. Honestly, if ideally I'm selling everything just after a year, just so I don't have to pay short-term capital gains. But I'm trying to get in and out as much as possible. I, I know a lot of people don't like doing that. They're big on the tax advantages. To me, every single time in my life, I've made a decision based on taxes. I've ended up losing way more money on the back end. So I'm just, I'm very fine with paying the taxes. Not that I, obviously I'd like to not do it, but it's just what I've learned over time. And that kind of allows you to be very quick in and out with these things, which is the other thing too, a lot of people don't realize is they, they have this idea they're going to hold forever. And it's like, you have a lot of expenses that come up when you're running a business, right? You have, especially when you're running a real estate private equity business, right? So like, just to give an example, right? Say you're buying $5 million deals and you're doing three of them a year, right? And you're putting in, let's say the equity is just to make the numbers clean, you're putting in 1.5 mil of equity into those deals. You're 10 to 20% of the equity. Usually I'm 30 to 40% of the equity with my business partner, but let's say you're 20% of the equity, right? That's 300K you're putting into every deal, right? You buy three deals a year, that's 900 grand. It takes two more years to actually get the money out of that first deal. So by the time you're done, you're into it for 2.7 mil just on what you're in investing into the deals, not to mention your paying taxes, your life expenses, pay, just everything, right? So I think a lot of people have this idea, we'll just hold forever. It's like, we need money in the door, actually, in the beginning. You need a lot of money in the door. Otherwise, it's going to be really, really difficult and you'll be like living, living on ramen, which like I don't really like doing. So I'd rather pay the taxes up front, have a lot of fun, spend the money and whatever, you kind of you make it up on the back end. There's a lot of directions I could go right now. You had mentioned triangle investing. When you 
do liquidate and you exit you know, a deal, do you consider a triangle investing approach for yourself? Or are you only focused on plowing it back into more real estate? Or do you have other aspects that you're investing in? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I look at a lot of stuff now. I think in general, basically, the if you're really good at what you do, right? And on the real estate side, you don't even actually need to be that good at what you do just because you're our general partner. And if you think about the fees you, you get on a standard deal, if you're any bit good, you're making a three to five X on your money, right? Any bit good. And just to, just to run you through the math on that, just because I know some people be like, oh, you're lying. Like it's honestly simple math. The Say you buy a deal for a million dollars, right? 750K debt, 250K equity. You're putting in 10% of the equity as the sponsor, right? So you're putting in 25 grand. You charge a 1% acquisition fee, which is honestly probably low for that. You could probably do 2%, but we'll say it's 1%, right? That's off the bat, right? That's 10 grand in your pocket, right? So you, you already made, what is that? A percent of your money back, right? Then you have asset management fees of 2% of the, of the equity, right? For five years, let's call it, just call it a five-year hold, right? So 250K, that's what, five grand a year? So that's another 25K. So at this point, you've already taken 35K back out. You get your other 25K back out, right? Because that's your principal. You already over 2X your money, not even counting profit in the deal. Right, you get any sort of profit in the deal; it's a three x easily, and that's that goes as you scale up in, in in volume too. Obviously, the math is the same. So, when people ask me, they're like, "Hey, like, do you put you putting your money in the market?" It's like, why would I do that? I can't per- outperform a three x in the market. Like, it's insane. It would be it would you'd have to be like an insane person to actually put your money in the market instead of just making a three x on a very mediocre real estate deal just with your fees. So, what ha- starts to happen is your opportunity cost becomes so high. That it's really hard to put money anywhere else aside from another business. So, like, I look at a lot of other businesses, and I'm looking at actually starting and buying a few right now. But that's the only thing that could possibly hit the same return hurdle. And even then, you really have to think about it because the risk you're taking on a multifamily deal that you know really well is really low. So you basically have a—I'm not going to call it a risk-free, but a very low risk three to five x. And if you outperform, it's way way higher than that. Versus going into a field you don't know well. Stuff you may not be able to control. It's like, what? Well, why would I do it? You know. Yeah. So you you're looking at a couple businesses right now. Are they service based businesses? What are they mismanaged? Like, what are you looking for? What's your kind of buy box you're interested in? A lot of service based stuff. Really, actually, I, there's one thing I will go into on that. I think what a lot of people, what I've actually didn't know in the beginning when I started running businesses, is just how much of it is based on revenue. Right. Obviously, you think there's a lot of it is based on how you run it, your fulfillment, your operations, everything like that. And meanwhile, like if you have a good sales team, you're going to be the richest guy in the world. It doesn't matter what you're selling, right? You, if you know how to create a sales team, you could be selling TVs, you'd be selling jacuzzis, you could be selling real estate private equity deals. It does not matter. So that's the entire thing. And that's how people get really, really rich is they create great sales teams. That's how people do it in business. And I think that's one of the things that really just started hitting home to me in the last few years. So it's really about I'd say my focus now is all on the side of generating that revenue and figuring out whether it's one, you're bringing the leads in the door yourself, or two, you're buying leads and you're able to convert them in a way that makes sense at scale. And those are really the two things. And once you crack that, say you crack being able to buy leads for your business, right? And that could be call center leads. It could be email leads. It could be whatever, right? It doesn't matter. Once you're able to crack that and you just know your basically your return on cost of every single new customer, it's done, right? Like you could be selling anything. And I think that's one of the hardest things to crack. I'm not going to say it's an easy process. But once you do, that's how people become really, really rich, right? That's, that's it. You need to find a business where you can either generate a lot of leads or you can buy a lot of leads and you just scale it. So that's, that's what I've been looking at most recently. 
Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash MI. All right, back to the show. Your background really was as an analyst, but you evidently, you've obviously got really strong sales skills as well. Where did you develop those? Uh, I have no idea. That I think I just kind of, I learned over time. I think a lot of that too is I did do a lot of pitches as an analyst. And I think you realize how you kind of, you just, you mess up so many times with that. And even like when I was pitching people my first real estate deals, my first pitches were horrible. 
And I'll even get that now. Like when I'm pitching someone on a new deal, I'll think about it after and I'm just like, what am I doing? They're like, why do they pitch it like this? And it usually takes a few iterations to be like, okay, like, here we go. This is actually the right way to do it. But I do think that that loop becomes quicker and quicker every time. And once you kind of understand the process, what you're selling, your demeanor, because a lot of it is just, is just the confidence level. And then a lot of it too, is once you get to a certain point, especially this happens on the real estate side a lot now, we've done so well for people on deals that you don't really need to sell much. If anything, a lot of the time you're just talking about the risks. So people don't like hate you later on if it goes bad. Because they think every deal is going to be like a, a 5X again. You're like, well, like, pump the brakes, right? And obviously you think you're going to do well, but you just you want to set expectations. So I think a lot of it kind of turns over to that. What I think has been humbling is I've actually taken, and on the online side, my basically my coaching business and all of that, I've tried doing a lot of the sales calls. And I think it's, it's humbling when you realize like you're not as good as the salespeople at that. And it's one of the only things that you can directly track the metrics of. And I remember I was just looking after one month, I was like, all right, like, let me, let me check my metrics. And it was just hard, like just total crap metrics. And I was like, all right, like literally no one to blame but myself, you know? And in a, in a really good way too, it allows you to delegate then because you're like, look, it's not even like I'm better than them. Like I'm going to give it to someone who's better than me. That's fine. And just going to let them do it. I think stuff like that was, was pretty cool too. Cause I've always been like, oh, like, yeah, I could do it. Like I'm going to be really good at it. And like, I'm good at it. I'm just not as good as the people who are great at it. You know, so you might as well just have the people who are great at it do it. Yeah. Let's get into that further. Your whole Twitter persona, real estate guide and creating content and writing. I've been, you know, like I said, a really big fan of your stuff. There's several that I like. There's creating your own yacht, which I kind of want to talk about. There's engineering luck and creating your environment. But I want to first touch on Twitter. Like, when did you realize what the power of Twitter and what it could do for your career? That was a while ago. I mean, I think I got on four or five years ago. I don't know the exact date, but I think that honestly might have been from following Wall Street Playboy's Twitter account and then going on from there. I don't know if I would credit them with the whole like everything else because I think I, I did a lot of the rest of that organically, but I think they were kind of the first reasons why I went on there because I've never been a social media guy. I have zero personal social media. Like I just think the whole thing is so embarrassing. But I think once you learn what you're doing and you understand distribution, and this is kind of what I was talking about before with, with sales cycle right? And understanding how to get leads. It's one of the most effective ways in the world to get leads, right? And, and if you look at the people who really crack it, and this guy, got, Andrew Tate, I don't know if you know him, he obviously gets a ton of hate. He is easily one of the most, the best business people we've seen in the last 10 years, right? That what he's done on the organic side of marketing is just, I, I think it's unparalleled. And regardless of what he's selling, he could be selling whatever. But the way he's been able to do it, I think is, is insane. And when you look at people like that, They've been able to scale their leads to such an extent that it's the business is like the mode is insane. The mode's insane. Everything's insane. It just it becomes such a crazy good business. So I think that's one of the things you learn pretty quickly too. It's like when you have this distribution channel, you can use it for whatever you want. And whether that's, for example, like I'll tweet, I'll be like, hey, look, I'm looking for deals. Send it over, right? Or hey, I'm trying to get clients for my coaching business, or whatever it is. Or even half the time, I'm just like, hey, look, I, like I have a bad insurance quote. Can someone help me out? Just basic stuff, right? Or I don't know this market well. Can someone help? Or I'm going here. Like, does anyone know someone who knows that? Just the network you get and the distribution you get, it allows you to do so many things. And I think that that's what really brought me to the space when I realized that. Let's get into some of the articles that, that you've posted on Twitter. Talk to me about creating your own yacht. You mentioned Aristotle Onassis. Can you talk about that story a little? Yeah, that, honestly, that happened to me. I was reading his autobiography, or not maybe not autobiography, but his biography. And 
just the, the whole concept of how he ran business was, was so insane to me when you compare it to how people run it now. And basically everything he did was just bringing people to him, right? He basically ran the business from the yacht. Just the idea of that every time you like stepped onto the yacht, you're basically like completely ceding like any sort of like position you have over to him, right? You're just like, you're totally in his territory. Everything's on his terms. And I think the way he was able to do that was so brilliant. I think it worked so well too, because he was in the shipping business, right? So it paired really well with that. But basically that entire concept is like, look, you're, you're bringing people to you. And once you do that, a lot of things start happening simultaneously, but you don't have those kind of boring interactions or low level interactions that most people have where it's like, Hey, who are you? Whatever. Where'd you go to school? What do you do now? What do you do? That doesn't happen, right? Because everyone knows who you are. Everyone's already impressed by you and everyone wants to meet you. And it doesn't mean you have to do it in a gaudy way. I think he was definitely a bit of a showman. I think there are a ton of different ways. And I, I know I talked about that in the article, how you can do it in a more like effective way that's, that's value add for everyone. But basically the concept is like, look, instead of meeting them as a Joe Schmo, you meet them as someone, right? And you meet them on your own terms because they're coming to you. And you basically engineer situations where that's the case. I think you may have mentioned this, the example you gave, uh, Moses Kagan comes to mind in creating Reconvene. It's a perfect example of he's the guy, you know, and people are coming not only for him, but largely, you know, he's, he's the guy that's in charge of the thing and it's a great benefit. Exactly. Right. You just kind of, and it doesn't even need to be that extreme, right? Maybe you're just in like an extremely low level example. Maybe you're just holding a Super Bowl party every year, right? But just as long as it's on your own terms, people want to meet you, engineer the event in a way that that is tasteful, you end up getting a lot of meeting a lot of people and generating a network that you wouldn't normally have generated. And I think you obviously can do it in a way better way than a Super Bowl party. I think that's a low level way, but even something like a social media account, just the amount of inbound you get from running something that has a follower base is really pretty insane. And the way I look at it is you want to engineer as many situations as possible where it's on your own terms. And I think almost no one does that in life. I had Zieva Kaczynski on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he met Sam Parr, had a book club when he was like, nobody knew who Sam Parr was of the hustle. And he just started a, a book club and Zieva Kaczynski showed up at his book club, met him. Tim Ferriss shows up later on down the road. You know, it's just like, and Sam was the guy leading the, the book club. Anybody can do that, but not everybody takes the time to organize it and do it. And the benefits are, are huge. And it, like you said, it could be anything like, it could be a simple Super Bowl party. It really could be anything. The, the whole thing is you're bringing people together who wouldn't have been there and you're bringing them together on your own terms. And that's, that's really the crux of it. Obviously, there's higher levels to it. Like I said, reconvene is probably on, on the higher end. I think a social media account is probably on the higher end just because the scale you can reach is actually infinite, essentially. But yeah, any, anything you could do, any situation you can engineer like that, it helps. Let's get into a little bit about the Real Estate Guide University Acquisitions Bootcamp. Talk to me a little bit about that and what you've been up to lately with it. Yeah. So Acquisitions Bootcamp is basically, to take a step back at how I created the program is I think the way a lot of investing is taught right now is completely wrong. Right? Basically, you get handed a book of like what Warren Buffett did like 50 years ago. And you say, here's how to invest, which I don't think makes sense for a lot of reasons, but mainly because every person's different. Right? Every person's looking for, they have a different risk profile, they have a different skill set, they have a different, they have different goals. Right? So all those things mean that like, what I would tell someone to do who's 65 is not the same thing I'd tell someone to do who's 25, right? By the same token, someone who has a 10 risk tolerance, I wouldn't tell them to do the same thing as someone who has a five risk tolerance. And, but in conventional sense, they're all taught the same way, right? Like when you go to an MBA class, no one's taught differently based on the risk profile, which to me makes no sense. But 
And that's kind of how I, I created the program. And basically what the program is, it's eight weeks. You're working one-on-one with either me or my business partner. We don't like farm it out to anyone at all. And the first week is all about understanding who you are and creating a business strategy that will work for you specifically in real estate, right? So week one is we understand all those parameters, right? Your risk profile, your skill set, your goals, everything like that. And we basically create a, a personalized strategy for you that makes sense for you to best make money in real estate moving forward. And I think no one's ever really done something like that before. To some degree, I think because it's hard, but in reality, once you kind of get the process down, I don't think it's that hard. And I think it also ends up helping a ton because you end up, I mean, I've, I've dealt with so many beginners at this point and people, even non-beginners who are trying to switch over from certain other asset classes or switch from single family to multifamily, whatever it is. And the biggest mistake they make is they spend like two years not knowing what to do because they don't plan. So I, I always think the first thing you do is you create a plan. Second thing is on the underwriting side. So that's week two. Week two is all about underwriting. It's about underwriting the right way. I think a lot of people focus on like 30 different metrics. That's just not what I do, right? Basically, I'm looking at two things. One is on your in-place income. We're looking at the DSCR just to make sure you can source bank debt. On the stabilized income, we're looking at basically your stabilized yield above the market cap rate. That's You really have to simplify it. Obviously, we get into depth with full models and everything like that once we get into the, the, the program and everything. But that's one of the biggest things I've seen. And based on what I've, how many clients I've dealt with so far, I would say less than 5% of people, even people who have real estate experience, have underwritten correctly. Everyone always has some big mistake in there, which is just, it just shows, goes to show, I guess, the complexity which is taught right now for just no reason. Week three is really all about picking a market. Right. So understanding how to pick a market the way I explained earlier in the call, where we're not just like running around, like looking at statistics for no reason. We're trying to find places where you can actually make money where the stabilized yield is above the market cap rate. And that day one, you're walking into it making money. Week four is just understanding the closing process. And basically what that is, is due diligence checklist, lender checklist, closing timeline, everything like that to really make you and really get you to the point where you could do it yourself. Cause that's, that's the point of the entire thing. And then weeks five through eight are all just out in the market underwriting deals and trying to find a deal. And that's the goal of the program is, is to get to get you a deal. So that that's really how it works. The basically the mechanically there's content released every week for the first four weeks. And you basically complete the assignments. It, it doesn't take long. It's around probably 15 minutes a day. And then weeks five through eight is really all on the sourcing side, underwriting deals, and we're trying to get a, a deal under contract. That's the program. It's done great so far. I actually really enjoy doing it too. And I'm just excited to to keep doing it. That's awesome. I've had several of my early guests on. I mentioned Casey Miracle. There's several others that had done your early early on. It was called what the it was like real estate God University or you had a community, right? And they said the value of it was just immense. You know that they and this is not to blow smoke or anything like that, but truly they said it's better than anything else out there. Better than a university degree that takes four years in real estate, whatever. This is compressed time. It's so so useful and actionable and all of that. So. Pretty cool, like what you've created. Uh, appreciate that. It's act- pretty funny you say that. I was actually, one of my friends is in business school right now and they had a, a case, it was actually a Harvard MBA case study that they were just doing. And he was like, hey, you mind helping me out with this? And it, w- it was one of the dumbest things I've ever seen in my life. So like, I don't know what they're doing in college right now, but it just, it seems like it's just so useless. And I know from the people I've talked to who have gotten their master's in real estate and stuff like that, all of them have said like, it, it, it doesn't teach them anything. Like they were just like, it was, it was like a waste of time aside from the networking. So I do think it's pretty cool to be able to deliver what I think is a superior product for a significantly lower price across the board. Right. And do it in eight weeks or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. You try and compress the entire timeline from two years to eight weeks. And the community is huge. I, I imagine like everybody's, 
kind of talking, sharing what they're up to. And, you know, so many people talk about the importance of having a mastermind and in, in community, like the growth, the exponential growth that takes place when you put yourself in those situations is massive compared to just you on your own trying to do it alone. A hundred percent. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things too, is once you, you actually want to start making money, it's being around people who that's what they do is they make money because right? most people don't make money, right? That's not what they do. They don't spend time thinking about it. They don't spend time doing it. But if you're around people, that's what, that's all they do. And what I've always said too, is like, look, if you lock yourself in a room for 16 hours a day for 365 days a year, you're going to make a lot of money, right? The hard part isn't actually making the money. The hard part is finding, getting the ability to lock yourself in a room for that long. So I think people really complicate what's difficult and what, what isn't there. But if you spend all your time making money, you're going to make money. It's, you just will. And I think that's kind of the same concept is once you start dealing with the people who make money, they kind of have that same mentality. It really helps. Yeah. You've got so much going on. You've got, you know, the acquisitions boot camp. you're working one-on-one with people. You've got your own deals going on. Like talk to me about just the habits in your daily schedule. How do you prevent work from like bleeding over? Cause you could work 24 hours a day, right? I'm in the same situation and I'm struggling with this actually. Like how do you structure your time and your life? So you're not working all the time. I don't think I'm the guy to talk to for this. I think, um, uh, okay. <laughs> I think um, I'm pretty much out of my mind with this stuff. But I'm pretty much always working. I, I don't know if I've taken that many days off. I'm very bad, I would say, at the whole work-life balance thing. And usually what makes me, I think, uniquely bad at it is I'm, I'm very prone to like sprints. So like, I'll regularly go through a period where I'm, just, I'm literally doing nothing but working. And then I'll go through another period where I just don't touch anything for a while and just I'm doing whatever. And then you just have to like switch back and forth too, which I think drives my business partner somewhat insane sometimes. But I don't think I'm the guy to ask for this. I, I don't have like a schedule. I'm not really good at that stuff. I'm very much like a, like a ride the wave type of guy, which I think helps me a lot in a lot of ways. I think it's really useful when you're in a, a deal business where it is sprints, right? Basically, when you're closing a deal, it is all about sprinting. But I think in a lot of ways, it, it probably hurts me on the operational side of a lot of things. Just setting up systems and stuff like that, I think is definitely not my strong suit, which I'm trying to be better at. But And I think that's one of the things as you try and scale, operations are really important, right? Just being able to set up those systems, like I was saying, and really on the sales side, it's like, how can we get leads in the door? How can we convert those leads? And that's every single business. That's really all you're doing, all you need to figure out. And then you have the fulfillment side, but fulfillment's almost never the hardest part of the business. And I think a lot of people are always like, oh, like when you buy the deal, like the work starts. Like, no, it doesn't. Like the work starts, the work is done if you bought a great deal. Like that is, that is done at acquisition. That was the hardest part of the deal was buying something for 2 million that was worth 5 million. That's by far the hardest part. After that, like I'm happy to work on like hammering nails, but that, that's not difficult. Like that's going to get done. So that, that's kind of how I look. And I think it's definitely a bit of a different, a change in mindset when you kind of move over to that operational side specifically of really bringing in revenue more than anything else. So what's the end game? Do you have like a X number? Like once you hit X, I'm out, I'm done. I'm going to go surf or whatever. Or do you like the game? Do you, do you see yourself continuing to you know, contribute to this community you've got going and doing deals and buying businesses? Like, I don't think I'll ever stop. I think what I do like will probably change a bit over time. I don't think I'll ever stop buying real estate. I think it's one, I think I'm very good at it. And two, I think it's almost impossible to replace just everything I've said before with the returns I get, the risk reward, the tax benefits, all of that. But I think in general, like there are, I'll, I'll probably end up switching through a lot of things as time goes on, just because like, I kind of get bored, just uh, whatever I'm doing. And I think I'll probably like what I do, what's appealing to me is just being able to, especially these deals that I sell out of pretty quickly, is like you can choose to like change direction at that point. Whereas like if you build a really large organization, 
you can't really change direction. Like you're on the Titanic, right? It, it's it's going to take forever to turn that. And I think a lot of people, and I've talked to a lot of people who run private equity firms of a kind of medium scale, and they feel a lot of them feel trapped because you can't really get off the ship. You can't really turn the ship. And you're just like kind of stuck making money that you like, you really wish was a little more, but you can't do much about. So I'd like to avoid that. But yeah, basically how I look at it is that there's a few other things I'd like to do. I'd like to run some, some physical businesses. I think I'd be good at that. I also really, this the only thing I'd actually want to be an employee for is I would consider copywriting. I think I'd be really, really good at long form copywriting. And I'd like to do that for one of the big affiliates one day, just in like a, a pure project role where they're like, hey, look, like you have two weeks, like create a script, like we'll handle, like, I don't want to deal with any of the, the media buying or anything like that. I'll have them do it. Just be like, look, like just create it and we'll run it. And I think that'd be really cool to do too. That would be cool. Have you studied a lot of copywriting? No, but I think the way I write is essentially copywriting. It is. Yeah. And when I've written copy for a lot of my own products, I've actually found that I was better at it than the copywriters I hired. So it's something I enjoy doing. I think also if I, if I spend some time actually studying it, like if you just gave me two weeks and like every sales letter, I think I could do a really good job of creating like a a killer sales letter for a product. So it's something I'm not going to say I'm going to do it right now, but I would like to just spend a month doing that probably at some point. I have the same kind of thought process. I'm listening to uh, David Senra's Founders Podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. It's it's really good. He just reads biographies and does basically his key takeaways. And I, I listened to the one on um, David Ogilvy, the you know Ogilvy and Mather guy, and Confessions of an Ad Man. Really, really good and inspiring. And you know his writing was so good. And it's I don't know. I, I love to write and read, and the two go hand in hand for me. But uh, we'll see. That's that's really cool. Is there anything we didn't get a chance to talk about that you wanted to touch on? I think honestly, um, like affiliate marketing side, I think I, I would really like. I think you would. It, it gets a little touchy with just how you're kind of always in a gray area. From what I understand, I have a lot of friends in the affiliate space, but I think I think that would be really fun. I think copywriting would be really fun. I also think doing like a a true type service business would would be really fun, which I'm I'm looking at doing that right now as well. So just kind of across the board, but in general, like if you gave me the choice, I would I would stay in real estate over all those. You know, I just I just think real estate is just so like I said, it just once you get it and you understand it, it it's just so simple, and you're really not taking that much risk. Your get your return you're getting is really unparalleled. And the tax advantages are unparalleled. So it's like, it's almost impossible to, to give up that income stream just because it, it is so good. And even like I said, like I'm not overly passionate about any of these things. Like I could, I could go between all of them, but I just think the, the risk reward there and the money you make is just kind of unparalleled. Right. And what's the alternative? Like, like you said, you know, the, the, it's not going to be in the stock market. You're not. Every time someone gives me an alternative, I run the numbers and I'm like, this makes no sense. I don't know. I don't know why we're even discussing this. And I'll get it all. Someone will be like, "Hey, like, have you thought about like pumping some of this money into like X, Y, and Z stock?" I was like, why? Like, so I can have a management team. I don't even know what they're doing. Like, I I, don't, I can't control any of it. And like, are they going to three X my money? Like, almost certainly not. And is, even if they do, is the risk reward worth that versus me controlling it and three Xing it? Like, it's not even close. Are you a Bitcoin guy at all? I used to own a fair amount of Bitcoin, Ethereum, mostly Ethereum. Had some run-ins with that that we could probably get into, but I lost a fair amount and, and made a fair amount in there to, to keep it simple. Currently, so I've, I've sworn that off for a bit just because basically what I realized is, is, look, you can make a lot of money in those spaces. And I think those spaces will continue to grow. But when I control my own money, I tend to do extremely well. When I put it kind of in the hands of whatever you want to call Bitcoin, Ethereum, there's a lot more factors at play. So to me, it's just like, look, I could probably make some fast money in that, 
or I could just keep doing what I'm doing. And like, if I keep doing what I'm doing, I'm, I'm going to make a lot of money, right? There's just, there's no doubt about it just based on the numbers. So why take the risk, right? Why, why go into that space when you have a sure thing? My dad had the same advice. He's a real estate guy. And he's like, you make money in your own business that you know well, and you lose it when you, you go outside of your circle of competence and try to make it somewhere else. And I kind of joke, he's he's invested in the stock market and he'll get emotional and sell at exactly the wrong time. I'm like, just do exactly the opposite of what my dad does and you're going to do pretty well. But he's done well in real estate, but nowhere else. And the thing with real estate too, is like, obviously it's harder to panic sell because of the, just because it's harder to transact in, but it's also harder to panic sell because the value is like so easy to calculate for yourself. Like when you have, let's just say, all right, cap rates, cap rates go up hundred basis points but you still have the same 500K coming to you every month like or every year, whatever you want to call it. Like, What do you care, right? You're just going to keep taking the money. It's not like a stock where like, yeah, obviously it's it's operating off fundamentals and there's cash flow there, but it's not as tangible to you, right? Especially if it's a non-dividend paying stock. It's not as tangible. Like you, you don't really know how the value is being computed as much. You don't see the cash flow coming in. It's not as much of like a, a real thing. And I think that's where people get tripped up. But like whenever I have a good real estate asset and the market turns, I never care. I'm like, okay cool. Like we, the money's still there. What do I care? This is a good place to stop. Real Estate God, thanks so much for your time. How can people find out more about you, get in touch with you, learn about your uh, acquisition bootcamp, stuff like that? Yeah. So all on Twitter, it's at the Real Estate G6, or if you just search the, the Real Estate God, and then everything's in my bio there. So you can just search from there. Yeah. I highly recommend your stuff. Great content that you're putting out and uh, really a great service to people just getting started and people that have had a lot of experience as well. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. I had a great time on the call. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes and courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. Follow us on TikTok at The Investors Podcast, on Instagram and LinkedIn at The Investors Podcast Network, and X at TIP underscore network. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.